Today's podcast is on Bactremia. We've broken this podcast into two podcasts, one to describe the general principles of Bactremia management, and the second podcast will be applying the principles we discussed to a few cases. So our learning objectives for part one are, one, to review interpretation of blood culture results with respect to community versus hospital onset, time to positivity, discerning true pathogen from contaminant, and identifying highest risk pathogens. Two, to explain why identifying the source of a bacteremia is critical to the management plan. And three, to review appropriate bundle of care for staph aureus bacteremia. Then we're going to apply the above knowledge to some patient cases. Today is probably one of the most challenging podcasts to deliver. We're going to start off with a case, which we will use as context to go through the learning objectives. A 74-year-old male presents to hospital with worsening weakness and back pain. He has chronic back pain in the setting of known degenerative disc disease, but reports worsening pain over the last several days, though he is a bit vague about when his symptoms onset. He also reports feeling malaise and much more fatigue than usual, culminating into him not being able to get out of bed this morning and having his wife call EMS. On arrival, his lumbar x-ray shows known degenerative disc disease, but nil else acute. Blood work is drawn and white blood cells return elevated at 14.2, newts 12.1, and CRP is up to 214. His CBC and biochemistry are otherwise unremarkable. Given his nonspecific symptoms but elevated inflammatory markers, blood cultures are drawn and returned with two-for-two two sets growing gram-positive cocci and clusters, time to positivity of 11 hours. So first, let's talk about the actual process of drawing and incubating blood cultures because this helps with interpretation of blood culture results. There are institutional variations, but for the most part, when we draw blood cultures, we draw two sets, each set consisting of an aerobic and anaerobic vial. So a total of four vials of blood are drawn. Right. Each set of blood cultures has one aerobic vial and one anaerobic vial for a purpose. The anaerobic vial has conditions to encourage anaerobic growth. Obligate anaerobes can't grow under aerobic circumstances, so this ensures that we actually capture anaerobes that might be circulating in the bloodstream. This is different from normal culture media for other samples, such as sputum or skin and soft tissue samples, which don't facilitate the growth of anaerobes. Once we've obtained the blood cultures, the vials go into an incubator, which has an alarm attached. When bacterial inoculum hits a certain threshold, the byproducts of bacterial replication and metabolism alter the transparency of the broth and change light refraction. This triggers the alarm in the incubator, letting the lab techs know that the blood cultures have returned positive, and is why we know exactly how long it took for the blood cultures to return positive. So, blood culture results are reported in real time. So in the case we just described, our patient's blood cultures incubated for 11 hours, at which time both sets of blood cultures hit a certain threshold of growth, which triggered the alarm on the incubator. Which brings up the question, why is the time to positivity reported on blood cultures, and what is the significance of it? The time to positivity is indicative of the general bacterial load and how high the inoculum of bacteria was in the bloodstream. Bacterial replication is exponential, and if we hit the threshold inoculum faster to trigger the alarm, we know that we started with a higher number of bacteria in the blood culture vial originally. So, the faster a blood culture returns positive, the higher the inoculum of bacteria in the bloodstream. We actually make use of this clinically for line infections. We draw blood cultures from both the line and the periphery. If the growth from the line is significantly faster than the growth from the peripheral cultures, it suggests the inoculum of bacteria is higher in the line, and so the line is the source of the bacteremia. Even outside of line infections, having a general sense of bacterial inoculum in the bloodstream can help us with more nuanced decision-making down the road. It's actually all relative. In general, the amount of bacteria circulating in the bloodstream is quite small, even for fast times to positivity. But when bacteria are present in a sufficient amount to be captured on blood culture, it has clinical significance and knowing the general size of the inoculum can be helpful. And because the amount of circulating bacteria is small, this is one of the reasons why we draw two sets of blood cultures consisting of four vials, to maximize yield. 
And this is also why for adult patients, each vial has a minimum 10 mils of blood in it. Blood culture yield is directly proportional to volume of blood obtained, so we need to obtain adequate volume of blood to ensure adequate sensitivity and that we will capture bacteria that is present in the bloodstream. Right, and another reason we draw two sets of blood cultures is to evaluate the possibility of contamination. We know that not all blood culture draws are perfect, and certain bacteria like different species of coagulase-negative staph, aka cons, for example, staph epidermidis, can grow in a blood culture as a result of contamination during the process of collecting the blood culture. So if a bacteria like cons grows in only one vial or one set, our index of suspicion that the bacteria may be a contaminant increases, in particular if the patient is asymptomatic. Similarly, if it grows in a single set and the time to positivity reported is longer, for instance, it took 24 hours to go positive, we know that the inoculum at the start was small, which could again point to the bacteria being a contaminant. So really, even just from the blood culture report, we have three pieces of data that helps us discern contaminant from true pathogen the species isolated, the number of sets positive, and the time to positivity. Any bacteria that hangs out on the skin can contaminate a blood culture during the draw. Coagulase negative staph, which we talked about, bacillus species, diphthoroids, micrococcus, and viridin's group strap are examples of some of the most common contaminants we see. In addition to the pathogen isolated giving us a clue, the number of sets positive is key, as mentioned. If two sets are positive, we should almost never operate under the assumption of this being a contaminant, although it does rarely happen. Finally, the time to positivity can also help us make the assessment. Anything 18 hours or less is pretty fast growth, which points to a bigger initial inoculum size, meaning it's less likely that the microbe is a contaminant. But don't take that 18 hours as a hard and fast rule. We commonly see true bacteremias with slower growth. We also have certain pathogens that even if present in relatively high inoculum are just slow growing on culture media. So there's some nuance there too. It is also worth mentioning that certain microbes should never be considered a contaminant. Staph aureus, gram-negative bacilli, and candida should never be considered contaminants to be disregarded. And the reasons for that are that these are pathogens that either shouldn't be colonizing the skin, like gram-negative bacilli, such that contamination wouldn't be a viable explanation for why they're growing, or they're aggressive, like staph aureus, which has high mortality risk when isolated in the bloodstream, so not worth the risk of considering them a contaminant. When you isolate staph aureus, a GNB, or candida on blood cultures, do not disregard this as contaminant. So the pathogen identified, number of sets positive, and time to positivity all help us figure out whether or not the bacteremia might be real without even having laid eyes on the patient. But the most important consideration in assessing a bacteremia, like always in medicine, is the clinical picture. So localizing symptoms are important here. The presence of localizing symptoms concordant with the bacteria circulating in the blood would suggest very strongly a true bacteremia. If, for instance, a patient has several weeks of right upper quadrant abdominal pain, fever, and malaise, and then we identify strep anginosis in the blood two for two sets, we would be quite confident that this is a true bacteremia. The clinical picture sounds like a liver abscess, and we've isolated a pathogen in the bloodstream known to cause that infection. So let's go back to our patient with the central back pain growing gram-positive cocci two for two sets, with a timed positivity of 11 hours. So just by looking at sets positive and timed positivity, we know that we are not dealing with a contaminant. Of concern, we can't ascertain the duration of this patient's symptoms or how long he's been bactremic. This is one of the challenges with community-onset bactremia as opposed to hospital-onset. From the community, patients may present having been bactremic for days, and this can be especially concerning if the patient is bactremic with certain pathogens that have virulence factors rendering them prone to seeding. This is especially relevant for pathogens known to be associated with endocarditis. That is, the Duke criteria pathogens. The most commonly encountered Duke criteria pathogens are Staph aureus, Viridin's group Streptococci, and Enterococcus. All of these gram-positive cocci can attach themselves to damaged valves or seed bones, joints, or other spaces. 
So community onset bactremias are higher risk than hospital onset because it's just more likely that the patient has been bactremic for some time, which can predispose to complications. And for the Duke criteria pathogens, this makes us particularly nervous for complications like seeding or metastatic foci of infections. So our patient is at a higher risk for deep infection, being a community onset bacteremia with a gram-positive organism. Knowing it's gram-positive cocci and clusters, we know we are dealing with staphylococcus species, and that rapid time to positivity points more to staph aureus as opposed to a con species, which generally grows more slowly. So now let's look at the clinical picture. He's localizing pain to his spine, and we know the virulence factors of gram-positive pathogens allow them to seed hematogenously to different sites. So in all likelihood, we are dealing with a vertebral osteomyelitis. Right, so the localizing symptoms helped us confirm that this is a true bacteremia and has led us to the probable diagnosis. Now we need to carefully consider those localizing symptoms when we're making decisions around empiric therapy and to discern what interventions we need to confirm source of infection. Remember when we are making decisions around empiric therapy for bacteremic patients, we have to treat both the source of infection and not just the bacteria growing in the blood. Just because we isolate a microbe in the blood, that doesn't mean that this is the only organism we need to cover. The source infection may be polymicrobial. For example, we may have a patient with an intra-abdominal infection and we capture E. coli in his blood. We cannot just treat the E. coli in the bloodstream. We would have to worry about the source infection being polymicrobial and ensure our regimen covers all of the probable involved pathogens. In the case of intra-abdominal infection, this includes other gram-negatives and anaerobes. Right, in the case of our gentleman with acute on chronic lower back pain, the localizing symptoms suggest vertebral osteomyelitis, as mentioned. In the absence of an adjacent polymicrobial infection, like gangrenous cholecystitis with contiguous spread causing osteomyelitis, which would be very uncommon, or a chronic wound with deep spread into the spine, this would most likely be a monomicrobial infection. Our patient doesn't have any localizing symptoms beyond his back pain, so no abdominal pain, and doesn't have a contiguous wound, so we can be fairly confident that we're dealing with a monomicrobial vertebral osteomyelitis from hematogenous spread, and we would initiate empiric therapy against monomicrobial staphylococcal vertebral OM accordingly. The localizing symptoms also allows us to tailor our investigations to confirm the source infection and identify any complications, instead of having to take a shotgun approach to imaging. In this case, we would need an MRI spine to confirm that this is really vertebral osteomyelitis like we're suspecting, and identify complications like an epidural abscess. Our suspected source infection also tells us what we need to monitor our patient for most closely. For example, in this gentleman, we know we need to watch out for red flags like saddle numbness, tingling in lower extremities, urinary retention, or other signs suggestive of cauda equina secondary to epidural abscess, which would be a neurosurgical emergency. Okay, so now let's take it back to the beginning with our patient to be systematic in our approach. Let's say we're on CTU and we receive a call from eMERGE about this patient who's being admitted to our service with acute on chronic back pain, weakness, malaise, and elevated inflammatory markers, whose blood cultures have just gone positive two for two sets gram-positive cocci with a time to positivity of 11 hours. When we get a call about positive blood cultures, we have three general steps that we should take. First, we repeat blood culture stat for gram-positive microbes or when we don't have a clear source. Second, we start effective empiric therapy. And third, we identify what further investigations are required. So for our patient, when we get the call from eMERGE, we would start by repeating blood culture stat because he's growing gram-positive cocci in clusters. So even though we had a suspected source of infection and diagnosis, we would repeat blood cultures. And there are a few reasons for this. While we do try to be conscientious not to poke patients unnecessarily, repeating blood culture stat when we have gram-positive pathogens or an unknown source can help us make good decisions down the road. For gram-positives, we do it because gram-positives may be either a contaminant or a true pathogen. And there may be some circumstances where patients' blood cultures are clear on repeat despite having not received antibiotics yet. This can help us discern contamination. When we have an unclear source of infection, 
Repeating blood culture stat is helpful because there are situations where we can capture transient bacteremias of unclear significance. If we repeat blood cultures prior to treating and identify that the organism cleared without antibiotics, it's helpful for prognostication and helpful for discerning our level of concern for metastatic foci of infection. On the other hand, if we repeat blood culture stat and then those repeat cultures come back positive, we have a better sense that this is a true bacteremia of relatively high inoculum. So when you get the call that blood cultures have come back positive on a patient with a gram-positive pathogen or when you don't have a clear infectious source, repeating culture stat before initiating antibiotics can provide extremely helpful information for down-the-road decision-making. Right, so for our patient, we've ordered our stat blood cultures as soon as we took the call. Next, we need to start effective therapy, and to do this, we need to identify what we need to cover. Yes, we need to figure out whether we need to cover more than just the bacteria isolated in the blood. In this case, we have already said that the patient does not have a contiguous wound or any contiguous intra-abdominal complications that would suggest a possible polymicrobial vertebral osteomyelitis. So from the information provided, it sounds like we can just direct our empiric therapy at Staphylococcus species. We would therefore start with vancomycin. Pharmacy would monitor in dose. So we repeated our blood cultures. We've started empiric therapy targeted to both the source infection and the bacteremia. Now we need to obtain the appropriate further investigations to confirm the source and investigate any further complications. Basically, further investigations encompasses anything intended to further evaluate localizing symptoms to confirm the source of infection and rule out additional foci of infections or complications. This again highlights the importance of localizing symptoms and clinically evaluating our patients. So we've already said that for our patient with suspected vertebral osteomyelitis, based on his localizing symptoms in the setting of his bacteremia, we need an MRI spine. So at this point, we will obtain that imaging to ascertain our source of infection, which will guide us further with respect to what to expect, what to monitor for, and suspected duration of treatment. And just a quick comment here, our patient had x-ray on arrival, but x-rays lag for at least 14 days before showing osteomyelitic changes, and they won't show soft tissue complications like epidural abscess. So our negative x-ray doesn't really tell us anything, and we do need that higher sensitivity imaging. So now, we've done the three critical steps for the initial workup of our bacteremic patient, We've repeated culture stat because our patient grew a gram-positive organism. We've started effective empiric therapy targeting not just the bacteremia, but also the source of infection. And we've started investigations to confirm the source of infection and identify complications of whether we need surgical involvement or other subspecialty support. What is next? Well, next we need to think about the pathogen growing and whether this is a high-risk bacteremia. And some of that comes from experience. But for simplicity's sake, the easiest way to remember the highest-risk pathogens for bacteremia, as already mentioned is to consider the Duke criteria for endocarditis pathogens as being high risk. So, most commonly, Staph, Enterococcus, and Bearden's group Strep. These are gram-positive pathogens that have virulence factors that enable them to adhere to damaged or inflamed tissue and cause metastatic foci of infection. So let's say that our patient's blood cultures come back as MSSA, two for two sets. This is a Duke criteria pathogen. In fact, you could say that it's THE Duke criteria pathogen. Our stat repeat blood cultures that we ordered following our initial blood cultures also came back positive with MSSA, two for two sets. So this is a high-risk bacteremia. Knowing this, what are our next steps? This segues nicely into our bundle of care for Staph aureus bacteremia. Staph aureus has a mortality of around 30% when isolated in the blood, so we know it is crucial to follow the correct bundle of care to support good outcomes for our patients. So we have a particular bundle of care for Staph aureus bacteremia consisting of four steps. These are to treat, repeat, echo, and consult. If you like acronyms, it's the TREC, T-R-E-C. So first, treat and repeat. One, treat with optimal antimicrobial therapy targeted to the bacteremia and the source of infection. For MSSA bacteremia with a suspected monomicrobial source of infection, 
This is cefazolin or cloxacillin, both of which are associated with better outcomes compared to vancomycin. They have mortality benefit. For MRSA, this would be vancomycin to start with. Our patient has grown MSSA, so now we would stop vancomycin and we would start cefazolin 2 grams IVQ8 for this patient. Step 2 of our bundle, repeat. So for Staph aureus bacteremia, we repeat blood cultures every 48 hours to document clearance. This is key for identifying source control issues and the need for further intervention, as well as discerning duration of antibiotics, because for Staph aureus bacteremia, our duration is determined from negative blood cultures. So for our patient, we need to ensure that we order repeat blood cultures 48 hours after starting our antibiotics, and we need to continue to order those repeat blood cultures until we get two sets of negative blood cultures, showing that our patient has cleared his bacteremia. So step three. We have to obtain an echo to evaluate for endocarditis, recognizing that transthoracic echo is a starting point and has inadequate sensitivity to rule out infective endocarditis and can only rule it in. Endocarditis is present in around 25% of patients with Staph aureus bacteremia acquired in the community, and echo should be obtained almost invariably for patients with Staph aureus bacteremia. Different health authorities will have different access to transthoracic echo versus transesophageal and different protocols, but just remember to order an echo. ID will help make further decisions around this as needed. And this brings us to our fourth step of the bundle. So for step four, infectious diseases consultation. This is associated with a reduction in mortality in the literature. This reduction in mortality is suspected to be attributed to not just decisions around therapy, but to the heightened alertness and rapid identification of metastatic complications and advocating for appropriate evaluation and management of these. So by following our TREK four-step bundle for staph aureus bacteremia, we can ensure our patients with Staph aureus bacteremia are properly treated, evaluated for endocarditis, monitored for metastatic foci of infections, and have the best outcomes possible. And to be honest, this is a safe bundle to follow for our other Duke criteria pathogens as well. For instance, a JAMA study of community-onset enterococcus bacteremia a few years ago showed a prevalence of endocarditis of 25% in these patients. So for enterococcus bacteremia, applying the same bundle of treat, repeat, echo, and consult would still be good practice. Okay. So now for our general take-homes for bacteremia. 1. Blood cultures are drawn in two sets, each set containing one aerobic vial and one anaerobic vial. Blood cultures are placed in an automated incubator that will alarm technicians when a positive result is obtained. The use of four vials ensures adequate volume to capture true bacteremias and additionally can help us discern the probability of something being a contaminant. Time to positivity aids us in discerning the inoculum size of an isolated pathogen and can further support us in evaluating whether something is a contaminant or true bacteremia. 2. Localizing symptoms are critical for evaluation of a bacteremia. Bacteremia is not an infection in and of itself. Bacteremia is secondary to a source infection. Localizing symptoms help us identify that source and tailor treatment and investigations accordingly. 3. Certain pathogens should never be considered contaminants when isolated in the bloodstream. Staph aureus, gram-negative bacilli, and candida should all be considered as true bloodstream infection when they're identified. 4. When alerted to positive blood cultures, we should ensure we repeat blood culture stat if we have a gram-positive pathogen or an unclear source. We should also start effective therapy targeted to both the suspected source of infection and the bacteremia, and conduct appropriate investigations to confirm the source of infection and any complications. 5. Staph aureus bacteremia is associated with high mortality, carries a high risk of endocarditis, and has a particular four-pronged bundle of care. That four-pronged bundle of care is 1. Treat with optimal antibiotic therapy. 2. Repeat blood cultures every 48 hours until clear. 3. Echo. And 4. Consult infectious diseases. And our acronym for that is TRAC. And that concludes part 1 of our Bacteremia podcast. In part 2, we'll tackle a few cases. 